Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. Welcome, Sam Smith, to the All Points West podcast. Uh, Sam is the founder and former chief executive of FinCap, uh, now Cavendish, the AIM-listed brokerage and financial advisory firm. During her career, she's established a corporate finance business for JM Finn & Co., the private client stockbroker, and then led the subsequent spin-out of what became known as FinCap in a 2007 management buyout. Under her leadership, FinCap grew from a million pound turnover a year to one million a week. It became a nominated advisor and broker and added an mergers and acquisitions advisory arm in 2018 when it acquired Cavendish Corporate Finance. The firm is the largest broker for companies listed on AIM, and she and her team listed the firm in 2018. Sam stepped down as CEO of FinCap in September 2022 and has since built up a portfolio of non-executive roles at companies like Solid State, Suma, 55 Redefined and Griffin Markets. So if you wouldn't mind, Sam, let's start there. Could you tell us why you decided to step down as CEO of FinCap and still at a relatively young age? Yeah, absolutely. So I had been CEO for 24 years. So it was a quite a long time. And I think it got to the point where you know, in January of that year, I really wanted to stay for 10 years, build it up and build what was the start of a consultancy division where we were looking at culture, sustainability and all the growth areas that boards needed advice on. And we did one acquisition in around the April. And then you know, Ukraine happened and the market happened and we went into what was going to be a very difficult period of time while also reporting our best year ever. So I think it was the point of, have I got five years in me to do this, to get through, to make the necessary decisions that need to be made in these cycles? And I've been through two of them before, so I know what is involved. When I can't do any of the exciting stuff, that was the bit that I was really excited about because the share price wasn't at the point. And I had a great successor who was very culturally aligned and we were just about to report our best results ever. So I thought, I, I haven't got five years in me, I can't do it. And and that was it. And I think when I made the decision, I'm out, I think it was, I'm not going to do an exec role again. And I think that was the key thing for me was thinking, enough's enough now. And I never looked back really. It's been you know, probably a decision I should have made a couple of years before. But it's been very lovely being on the other side. Yeah, I bet. I mean, what was the balance like in that decision between that five-year outlook being a a pretty daunting one and then the personal stuff that you were having to juggle as a mum of a young child and not being at home enough? If the market had been continuing to be good and I could have done the other acquisitions and we could have really seen how we could grow the business to a couple of hundred million turnover, and if that had been... really where we wanted to go and could have achieved it I think that would have given me the energy to do it so the market was a big factor you know what's going on and we'd had Brexit we'd had the election we'd had Covid I left when a lot of CEOs of public market companies after 20 years were going and I think it was just enough's enough so I think the market was a big thing but you know if I had been excited and the market had carried on and I'd stayed I think that would have been the wrong decision for me and my daughter 
because you know, a lot of my friends said around that age of she's just nearly coming up to 10 until they're teenage you've really got those years and you need to be around a bit more and that has proved to be the case I mean me being able to pick her up from school every day this year has made a big difference to her so she doesn't really want to speak to me 10 minutes later so I've got lots of time to do other work but being there and being flexible was hugely rewarding and I don't think I would have it, almost I'm pleased that the market did what it did and what happened happened because if I had stayed I think that would have been a bad decision for my health and the family yeah I'm sure there's lots of busy parents with young families that can empathize with that kind of juggling um it's great to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons not least for the insights that you can give into what it's like to run your own business in a pretty pressurized environment. But you're also a great advocate for female entrepreneurship and leadership and being a pioneer in this regard. So you were the first female CEO of a city brokerage and you're part of the government task force for women-led high growth enterprises. How have things changed since the time you first entered the city and now? What was it like when you first started? When I first started, even before FinCap, my first work experience when I was 18 was on the commodity trading floor when it was all open out. And I remember walking in at 18 in my little, you know, getting my outfit ready and thinking, God, what's this going to be like? It's quite exciting, my first glimpse of the city. And I walked in and I think there was one woman and everybody else was men and they would have their little cubicles and they'd have pictures of naked girls, page three and blah, 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 everywhere. And they start wolf whistling at me. And that was my very first experience of the city. But at the time, because there were so few women in it, it didn't really bother me that much. I didn't think, oh my God, this is outrageous. I just sort of thought, okay, I'm in a man's world, just make a few jokes. And, you know, it, I didn't feel uncomfortable particularly. It was great fun. They were great people. So that's where it started. I think as it's moved on now, that would be absolutely horrendous and, and times change. But it has got a lot better. What I think I have noticed since I left the city, I mean, obviously I championed trying to have a different culture in the financial services business. And I thought we'd done a really good job and you know, changed things. But when you're out and seeing what other companies do around culture, and I look back in, for about a year, I didn't even want to go back to the city. I didn't even want to be there because you suddenly recognise it is very different to other sectors. And I think there is a lot of groupthink in the space because it's also similar and even if you're a bit of an outlier which we were trying to campaign for change and you're really trying to make a difference you realize it's so different from everywhere else but everyone thinks it's okay um so i think now looking back in it hasn't really changed much at all and it hasn't kept up with where everyone else is so now it, it seems very much in need of improvement i would say yeah i guess it's quite easy to, when you're in your own little bubble, to think that everybody else is doing the same. But what you're saying is that having stepped away from it, you now realise that other firms have still got a long, long way to go. Yeah, and I think it's a mindset. You have boards of directors, you have senior people who are all thinking, right, we're trying to do something better, we're trying to treat people well. But when you're out of it and you get different boards who really are thinking differently and realising that diversity is not just about box ticking, it's about inclusion and it's about culture, and it's about how people feel valued, and doing the hard work of really thinking it through and making the effort to listen to people. That cultural piece, I don't see 
really changing hugely in the city. And I think the great thing of COVID was this hybrid arrangement was very good for certain people. Yes, people need to be in the office, but do they really need to be in the office five days every day going back to the same? So I think it's it's culture from the top and really wanting to make a difference and that meaning something to you as the CEO and the board driving it. And I think it's still very bottom line focused because the people in it are largely wanting to make money. Yeah. Do you think this resistance to change is largely down to the fact that it's dominated by men of a certain class and education? I think it's, you know, having groupthink is a problem. And there are a lot of the same people in senior positions where the power lies. And I think the danger is that you don't think in another way, you don't see another way. And it's hard to convince people to think a bit differently if that's all they've ever known. And unless you bring other people and and help them see another side, they don't see it. So I do think there's a, a hell of a lot of group think still. And when you do come in and you're a bit different, that is very difficult for most women to be in that very male environment and to be able to speak up when your view isn't always taken that seriously. So I I think that's the whole thing I champion about boards at the moment. It is about a diverse range of thinking and it's just as important to have people from different backgrounds who can get people to understand. And I think that diversity of all types is really what's needed on the board. So you start to open your mind to think a bit differently. Yeah. Now, you must get asked to judge, present and speak at various awards and and dinners, but could you tell us what it was like judging the 2016 Every Woman Awards, which celebrates female entrepreneurs? I, I read that there was an appearance from the women who inspired the film Made in Dagenham about the female workers at the Ford factory in Essex who in 1968 went on strike for wages that were in line with those of their male colleagues with the same skills and their fight eventually led to the Equal Pay Act of 1970. Yeah, so I didn't realise it was the 2016 one, but I remember that event very, very clearly. It was the most emotional. They're always very emotional when you've got women on stage talking about their journeys, how difficult it's been, um, how they've broken down barriers. But when, I think they were all in their 90s, the women who'd really campaigned for change and achieved so much regarding equal pay, They were 90 and they all walked on stage and it was, I mean, I was in tears, everyone was in tears. It was an amazing emotional moment because you realise, and this is always what I've believed, it takes one person, it takes one person to start a movement. That was a group of five or six women who made a difference to everyone else. And it was, for me, probably everything I believe in, you know, that it's fairness, it's the small person getting through, changing things, never giving up. it was pr- pretty amazing. And you look at them and you think, you know, they're, they're normal women. And that's the lovely thing. They're normal women who are in a factory who just thought enough's enough and they bought and they didn't have the background, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the connections. They just had a will and a belief that this was totally unfair. And it, it just levels a playing field. I, I love stories like that. I'm a, I'm a sucker for stories like that. They, they do get to me. <laughs> That's a wonderful story that I'm sure will touch the hearts of lots of our listeners too. Is it better for women in the city uh, or in business now in terms of both the macho culture and the so-called glass ceiling? Or are the pressures and the obstacles different, do you think? 
it's got to be better, hasn't it, than the wolf whistling incident. So I think, you know, we forget our, we forget how far we have come. So, yes, it has, but we are still at the very early stages of where it needs to get to. And I think with boards, yes, we've got 40% of the FTSE with females on boards, but still we have companies with none. Still, we don't look at inclusion. We don't look at female CEOs enough you know how many female ceos we've got nine in the FTSE, hardly any you know, where's the pipeline coming from how many are on exec committee minus one minus two minus three where's your pipeline coming from there is so much to do and i think in schools you know i'm looking at a project at the moment with the task force but one of my things is as a female entrepreneur 80 percent of 11 to 18 year olds can name zero female entrepreneurs but they can name a man so, you know, if you're at school, you're thinking, what will I be? And you're starting with that confidence piece early. And this starts at primary school, where five to seven is where kids really start thinking about this. So we have to get in early. They don't know that women can do these things. They don't know women can run businesses or achieve great things. And it's, a, it's still a small number. So we have to do a lot of work to still champion that you can be this and you do have to see it. You have to see it to know that it's possible. So loads of work to do, but it's as important for men to want to achieve this and understand why it's important rather than becoming a little bit, what I hear now is, oh my God, I'm a white man of a certain age, I, I won't be able to get a non-exec job. And that rhetoric is really bad that people feel that that is doing one thing for someone else is not helping them. Now, if I could take you back to the city, there's been some consolidation in the broking and advisory sector, both before and after you stepped back from FinCap. Last year, FinCap itself merged with Sencos Securities. Do you see more consolidation in that sector and, and what's driving it, do you think? Well, we've just had Libra and Panma, haven't we? So that's another big one, which is interesting. So two really decent players come out the market and form one. Will there be more? I suspect everyone is looking at what they're going to do because being the smallest is no longer a great place to be. So those smaller guys will be feeling slightly vulnerable at the minute, you, you think? I suspect so. And I suspect it's a case of consolidate or be consolidated. And I think that was the, the view. You know, we either do something or someone's going to buy us. And you know, we had the offer from Pamir's. And I, I think they were very much the view of John and the team that they didn't want to be consolidated. They wanted to be the consolidators. But it feels like 2024 is going to still be a fairly challenging year. And we've got the election. So that's going to be uncertain. So yes, more to come, I, I suspect. A lot's been made about London's competitiveness or lack of with other big financial centres like New York. Why are companies shunning London in favour of other places? What should we be doing to make London a more attractive place to float or to invest? Well, half of it, I think, is how we talk about it, because we do talk ourselves down and it is all a bit depressing. And I, I saw Neil Shah last night, who's looks after sort of IPOs at the Stock Exchange, a lot of tech companies, and he's writing something every day now on his LinkedIn post, positive things that are happening on the public market, stocks that are going up, upgrades, and looking at listing. So one, I think it's just sentiment and not telling everyone in the media that it's all rubbish and it's all going wrong because I don't think it's as bad as we think it is. That said, a large part of the, the problem is 
we in the UK don't invest in the UK. So, you know, yes, there are things to do on risk appetite, which I think is a big problem for UK investors, you know, short termism, not really thinking about how to grow really big businesses and back them and for them to be loss making. I love the idea of the British ISA. Thought that was great. But anything we can do to incentivize UK ownership of UK assets, particularly on the growth side, will make a meaningful difference. Yeah, yeah. Since stepping back from FinCap in September 2022, you've taken on some non-executive director roles and you've written a number one best-selling book called The Secret Source, How to Superscale Your Business and Empower Your Talent with Empathetic Leadership. Now, going plural with some non-exec roles is a fairly common path for directors to take, but what inspired you to write the book? Is that something you've always wanted to do? I probably have one book in me, and the book I've always wanted to write is about the inspiring rebel, anyone really who thinks they're misunderstood and has got something in them and could create a business. But I think what happened, I ended up talking to a lot of companies about which non-execs do I want, what's important to me. Culture became a key theme. And I was doing so many meetings and you're talking through your background. And I had a very clear idea about what my next stage is going to be, what impact I want to make. And I met a, a great entrepreneur who said, look, you should write this as a book because it's just a great way of you give your book out it sets your stall you don't have to keep repeating it millions of times and everyone knows who you are and I thought yeah that's a really good point coupled with if I really want to write something about the FinCap story and how I use culture to scale that business and that was really our only differentiator in a very competitive market we didn't have cash we didn't have a market that was growing it was shrinking but we still managed to achieve growth and become the number one advisor and the only way we did that was through culture so it was like if I want to write it down while I remember I'm going to have to do it now so it took four months it was quite intense but I really wanted to appeal to those businesses that are around the one million turnover or above, but those that have done the really hard work and to try and encourage super scale because it's it's there that companies decide, do they go one way or the other? And I think in the UK, we need more companies to grow and scale, particularly female founders. And I think we need businesses to be better, to have better cultures and to use that as a driver and, it, and a competitive advantage on its own. And it's been great in getting it all down. You know, you forget when you were 1 million, 2 million turnover, how difficult it was and the problems that you had. And it was quite nice going back to think, right, how, when we were 1 million turnover, how did we do that journey? What were the important stages? How did we get it to 50? So it was quite cathartic in a way to sort of go through the history and put it in one place and do it. But I think that will be my only business book. I think that will be my one. I'm not sure I want to do it again. It's quite hard work. Great stuff. If I may now take you back to the very beginning, where did you grow up? What was that like? What did mum and dad do? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, so I grew up in West Sussex near Chichester, a town called Selsey Bill, which was right by the beach. Um, tiny little place. I went to the local state primary, the local state comp, and then we moved to the outskirts of London where I moved to a grammar school. So I've always been in the state school system. My parents, very normal parents. My mum was a nurse. My dad was a computer engineer, both very hardworking. Both came from working class backgrounds. I mean, my dad's parents lived in a council house that they bought off the council. So I think what I've done with my career, my parents don't half understand it, but, you know, it's 
I've been a bit of an outlier, I think, amongst our family to want to build something and be entrepreneurial and go and do these weird and wonderful things. And I have one sister who's a bit younger than me, um, who currently lives in America. Okay. Did she go down the finance route like you or just do something completely different? No, she went to, well, she went to M&S first of all on the graduate scheme and then she went into consulting. So she spent a long time in consulting and then moved into actually marketing. So she did the um, big marketing rollout of EE when they combined. So she also had a very big job. Where did you go to school? What were you like at school? Were you academic? Were you sporty? I definitely wasn't sporty at all. I was really, really quiet and really, really shy. I was also dyslexic, which I had no idea until last year when Aoife got diagnosed, my daughter. So I couldn't read properly till I think my parents said I was like 10 or 12. I couldn't really read properly. I couldn't tell the time. So lots of things which dyslexics find hard, I couldn't do at primary school. But as I got through secondary school and towards the end of secondary school, I did pretty well at my A-levels. I went to Bristol Uni. I realised I was, you know, I was quite bright, but I was very good at maths. I loved economics, which I saw as the study of people and how people as a collective make things happen in the economy. So did you do any other jobs after uni or did you go straight from uni to KPMG where you qualified as a chartered accountant? So I left Bristol and was going to have a year off. Um, I didn't, my parents didn't have money to fund that. So I thought, right, I'll go and work for four months, earn the money, go travelling, have the year out. So I started working at this insurance company in Bristol oh my god it was so horrendous I was just in this office you know you're working really hard you're thinking right well I don't know say we're working 10 pounds an hour or something uh, thinking how am I going to do this for months I it's literally I'm losing the world to live here it's awful and I think that gave me the the impetus to go I need to get on with my career. So I just went into scrap the idea of going around the world. So I've got to start this job in September, applied to all the accountancy firms at very last minute and luckily got an offer from KPMG to join in the September. So it was a bit of a month of running around. And I haven't looked back and I haven't had any time off since then. So I was 18. I just wanted to get on with it, I think. Just you realise that there's a big world out there. And if you want to get on in your career and that's important to you, I didn't want to muck around for a year at that point. Absolutely. I think that will resonate with a lot of people who perhaps did a similar thing after uni and did some pretty boring stuff to make a bit of money. Um, So after KPMG, you then went to JM Finn to set up the corporate advisory arm. What was that like? So I left KPMG and I went to JM Finn and I just got on with John Finn and he said, we're going to set up this division. And we didn't really know what it was. We just said, okay, well, wealth manager, let's set up corporate finance. Don't know how to do it. Do you want to have a go? And it was literally like that. We got on and I thought, oh, this sounds quite exciting. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll have a crack at that. It was like learning on the job. I'd ordered all the books. I'd ordered the company law guide. It was the yellow book at the time. I just read everything. And then you realise pretty quickly the technical stuff is easy. It is the people stuff that is hard. You probably didn't have much time to yourself when you were running FinCap, but you've had a little bit of time away now from the cut and thrust. So what do you like to do to relax? Well, it turns out I seem to, what what I like doing to relax is like reading about entrepreneurship and inclusion how I can change the world. So it was one of those weird ones where I think, you know, I've got 
bit more freedom now, which is great. What do I want to do? And I, I just reverted back to, if I've got a spare few hours, I'll talk to an entrepreneur and, and try and help them grow. Yeah, I, I just think it's so exciting. But I do do more now to relax. So I play a lot of tennis. Um, I love sport of any kind. I love being outdoors. I love hiking. Um, I like being in the water, you know, paddle boarding, whatever. Sam Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the All Points West podcast. Good luck with everything that you're involved with. Thank you so much. Thank you.